Welcome to A Step Towards Health, a dedicated set of interviews with therapists, counselors, and specialists from across the world, breaking down stigmas, clearing up misconceptions, and bringing you the information about therapy and how to make getting help easier. Well, at least we're trying our best. With this series, we're hoping to give you some form of clarity of what therapy is, what to expect from it, and how to access it. We will also be trying our level best to get the answers to the questions sent in from these experts. But please note this is for educational and understanding purposes only. I would also like to issue a trigger warning before we begin. The discussion, the questions, they all range over topics of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide, addictions, eating disorders, sexual assault, and more. Please take care while you listen to these episodes. If any of these discussions are triggering for you or bring up any negative feelings, please take care. If you still wish to listen, please do so with a friend or someone you trust around. If this isn't immediately available, please wait till you find yourself in the right headspace and with the right tools and environment accessible to get into such a discussion. Thank you and take care. Joining us today is Christopher Brown from the US uh, as the Executive Director of Full Being Services, a wellness collective that specializes in providing qualitative holistic services to people of color. Christopher ensures that clients receive culturally responsive services in a fashion tailored to their needs. He oversees community partnerships to ensure that more clients and families are able to benefit from the services offered and has fostered relationships with entities such as Juvenile Diversion Program, in Philadelphia and the national organization Akuma to increase access to services. He also provides trainings, workshops, and consultations on DEI, anti-racism, trauma-informed care, secondary traumatic stress, and other public health initiatives. Some recent work includes consulting with the NCTSN on putting up anti-racist lens on the childhood core curriculum of trauma, and past work includes training consultations and workshops with school districts and professionals in Nigeria. He has previous leadership experience in community mental health agencies as well, including school-based outpatient and crisis. He teaches grad and undergrad courses at Temple and Thomas Jefferson universities and has conducted workshops at places such as Jefferson Annual Trauma Conference, the University of Pennsylvania, and through the Red Depot group, helping organizations transition from where they are to where they want to be. Furthermore, Christopher is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania, who is also a Beck certified skilled cognitive therapist and certified basic facilitator in the childhood core curriculum of trauma. Additionally, he is a proficient TFCBT therapist who has led supervision groups, workshops, and trainings on it. Thank you so much, Christopher, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the, you know, the warm intro. Um, Let's get to it. Uh, so like I told you, uh, I wanted to make sure that this series gives a bit of information about how to access therapy as well. So could you start us off on telling us how would one go about accessing professional help in the US, specifically your state? Sure. So there are a number of different avenues. So I'm in Pennsylvania and really the majority. So there, there's several different avenues. If you're below a certain income, then you qualify for something called MA, uh, which is Medicaid or kind of federally funded insurance. And if you have MA, then you can access community clinics where uh, community mental health agencies where uh, you know people basically can go and they can get free services if they qualify for a different level of care other than outpatient. You know, like if they have higher needs, there are other programs now it's different per county, the, the, you know, the, the programs that are available, but there are some similarities across counties in the state between types of programs. So if there are more kind of higher level family needs, you know, communication, um, you, know, uh, you know, just like kind of dysfunction in the, the family ecosystem, family-based could be a level of care that, you know, someone can qualify for based off receiving a psychiatric eval and completing an application with their, their therapist or their case manager for, you know, for treatment. Uh, there's also private pay uh, where, you know, for private practices or clinics that do not accept insurance, 
you know, you can pay out of pocket to work with a clinician, uh, typically licensed or, or a psychologist who, uh, you know, you, you can get services from and you have kind of more options. But again, it's private pay. So the cost is more. There's also for people who are undocumented, and again, this is different per county, but at least in Philadelphia, you know, if you're, if you're ineligible for insurance and you're undocumented, you could still get services, mental health counseling, you know, it, by, at a community clinic near you. Now it has to be like in your catchment area. You know, you can't go across the city, but if there is a, you know, the, the provider that's closest to you, you know, you can receive services from them. Additionally, there are programs and organizations that provide free counseling as well for people who have difficulty accessing it or they're not, they can access, let's say for example, like a community clinic, but they're not able to get the type of therapist you're looking for or the, you know, someone who kind of matches their, their ethnicity or, you know, their background. So there are organizations that do provide free counseling that people can get connected to as well. And there are organizations that offer to pay a percentage or, or even at least a certain amount of sessions for people. So there's a number of different avenues that people can receive help out here. Thank you for breaking that down for us. I'm sure that information is going to be helpful to our listeners, especially those that are probably listening in from Philadelphia. I mean, Pennsylvania mm -hmm. as well, sorry. Um, but yeah, uh, so, uh, like I mentioned to you, I wanted to have a couple of discussions where we sort of break down the the existing stigmas and these preconceived notions. So um, if you're okay with having this discussion, I'd like to talk a little bit about the stigma around mental health, uh, specifically for men, and within the Black community as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I would say in general, men seek treatment less. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, it's not, I mean, there are some very clear, there's some very clear reasons why, but, you know, it's not very, it's not that cut and dry. So, you know, um, just for example, so in the US, you know, there's a lot of uh, toxic masculinity, you know, this kind of concept, you know, it, it goes by other names in other cultures, things like machismo, you know, where is it, it's looked at as weakness, to to want to seek help you know men are socialized in this culture to you know want to carry burdens themselves you know uh to you know to to be kind of quote unquote strong you know that's kind of a, a definition of strength so and there's this feminiz feminization of feelings you know here in american culture where you know you're not supposed to feel you're not supposed to you know experience that weakness you know that's a uh, quote unquote female thing. So there's a lot of shame and embarrassment when it comes to that for, for males specifically. And there's, there's stigma around mental health in general. There's been a lot of work to destigmatize it, but in interesting ways, especially for uh, cultures outside the US, the, you know, the, so this whole kind of medical model where, you know, it's not your fault you know, you were born like this uh, because of, you know, you could point to genetics, you can point to hereditary factors, you can point to, you know, being predisposed, but it, that's actually increased a lot of stigma for, um, you know, cultures around the world, you know. Uh, so it, it, that actually has had the reverse effect. But, you know, for men, there again, there, there's a lot of stigma. Uh, there's a tendency to act instead of feel you know, which leads to more kind of risk-taking behaviors, um, you know, suicide attempts. Uh, and, you know, men tend to uh, attempt less than women, but their attempts are more, more permanent, you know, or, or more likely to, to complete suicide because they're using kind of, um, you know, more, uh, I guess the way you say it, kind of brutal means right, more, more means that lead to a finality uh, of suicide. So uh, while they uh, tend to attempt less, you know, they complete suicide more. So a lot of these things kind of play a role in, you know, men seeking treatment less. And, you know, for men and women, the mental illness rates are they're similar, but the presentation is different. Uh, men often present when the issues are more severe kind of typically when things have already gotten out of control, 
um, where they, they've lost their handle on their symptoms or their feelings about their symptoms, or there's already been, you know, like major kind of consequences in their personal life, their relationships or their workspace, that kind of thing. Um, you know, kind of, and with that said, I mean, focusing more on the black community, there has been a lot, there's a lot of distrust of the systems here in the US. The systems have done uh, blacks, people in African descendants, well, really people of color in general here in the US has, they've done, you know, terrible, terrible things. So some common examples people point to are the Tuskegee experiments, you know, where they are, um, you know, studying people without their consent, without their knowledge. Uh, people have syphilis and not treating it and just die, you know, watching it get worse. Um, you know, there's more recently, I'd say probably this was like the mid 90s. The, the New York State Psychiatric Institute uh, was injecting young black and Hispanic boys with experimental drugs to test, uh, you know, if it minimizes criminality behavior, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack just with that. Um, you know, just look at the, how the medical field evolved through experimentations on, on slaves, you know, uh, the, the field of gynecology, uh, you know, like the, there's, I, to me, he doesn't deserve credit, but so I'm not even going to bother saying his name. But you know, the person's kind of looked at as the father of the field of gynecology. You know, he got that experience from you know, and, and he got that data from experimenting on on black women without their consent, without um, you know, without painkillers, you know, without any type of comforts that you know you would see or, or you would expect from a doctor or a gynecologist. So there's this whole history and these are just some examples, but there is a lot of distrust of, of systems here in the US for people of color, for black people, you know, medical racism, you know, in general, uh, you know, black people still receive a lesser quality of care than their white counterparts, you know, they're giving birth, black women die at a higher rate than white women. So, you know, we have this access to the same treatments, the same specialists, same doctors a lot of times, and we still have these, you know, this disparity in the results, you know, and it continues. So, again, this, this distrust of systems and also, you know, there's for, 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 for black, in the black community, there's, there's generally a more utilization of faith-based resources, you know, like getting pastoral counseling or, you know, mentoring, uh, you know, mentorship uh, programs and, you know, kind of people taking that role in the community. So they may not be seeking counseling in, in the traditional, you know, kind of face-to-face -face office visit setting, but they are still getting, you know, some kind of uh, therapeutic well, maybe not therapeutic, but some kind of um, support from, you know, a professional. So, you know, there may be this, this underutilization of counseling services, but like an overutilization of community member or, or faith-based services. I, so yeah, there's a lot of layers to kind of peel back with that. Well, I, I was unaware of almost everything you just said, like a certain amount of discussion I've heard of, but like this much conversation, I've never delved deep into it. Truly, I have a lot to, to learn myself, but thank you for opening my eyes to it. And I'm sure that these are conversations that we need to keep having more, more than anything right now. Thank you. Uh, just to build on that, could you tell us a little bit about what racial trauma is and sort of break that down for our listeners as well? Yeah, absolutely. So racial trauma is, you know, it's trauma experience, you know, based on their racial identity or kind of physical characteristics that may, may people assume that, you know, they're within a certain racial group. So they're, it, they're similar to, and there's a lot of overlap with ethnic and cultural trauma. You know, it's, it's a really a shared experience across members of the same race. So it's these kind of Venn diagram, these overlaps with racial trauma, ethnic, cultural trauma, historical trauma, 
intergenerational trauma. And, uh, you know, it, it's really important to note that discrimination, anticipatory discrim discrimination and perceived discrimination can all result in similar symptoms of trauma. Um, you know, microaggressions as well plays a role in that. You know, I mean, I think one of the things is when, when people talk about trauma, there's this tendency to, to think kind of big picture. You know, people think of like 9-11 or, you know, like a bombing, you know, a plane crash. Uh, yeah, those are all traumatic events, absolutely. But a lot of times people discount the little events that kind of add up to, we'll look at like a plane crash as a big T and all these kind of little events are little T's that can have a cumulative effect. So it's, for example, microaggressions where, you know, an individual it can be subjected to, you know, offensive, disparaging, humiliating, invalidating comments, uh, you know, repeatedly, you know, that over time, that can have the exact same impact on the person as being in a crash or, you know, a severe car crash or, you know, witnessing a shooting. So you see those same symptoms play out. So um, when it comes to, to racial trauma, I mean, it's, you know, again, these are shared experiences across members of the same race. So it's not just, it's not just, you know, a couple individuals here or there. This is, we're talking like the majority of people are all kind of experiencing the same things in the same and or different ways. So there's not, in my opinion, there's not enough emphasis on there. There's not enough recognition of it. You know, and there's, in the DSM, uh, you know, there's no real, there's no real uh, separation or, or acknowledgement, to me at least, of what racial trauma is and how we need to kind of look at this differently, uh, acknowledge it and, and treat it a little bit differently than how we would consider just this overarching category of PTSD. That makes a lot of sense. Um, building on that, is that why you're, you're so passionate about creating culturally responsive therapy? Uh, and is that why it's, it's important for us to like sort of induce that into the field? Like, could you break that down for us as well? Like what exactly is cultural responsive therapy and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a big piece of it. Um, I mean, so even kind of looping back to the last question, uh, you know, so racial trauma there, so there's, there's PTSD assessments that clinicians use to assess for different symptoms and, and to try to get a sense. But in, in many, I mean, just kind of going through assessments, you know, questions, listening to the responses, you know, reviewing how clinicians use the assessment to, to try to uh, gain this data. You know, unfortunately, you know, they're not really asking about racial trauma. They're not really asking about ethnic or cultural trauma. You know, you can ask, why aren't they asking? You know, are they unaware of the impact? You know, are they aware, but it's, you know, they're minimizing it? You know, is it something because it's not taught to them often in, you know, schools and their programs and there's not enough emphasis on it that you know, it's just maybe not that as important. It's a periphery issue, you know? Do they have their own biases that are impacting how they view this, right? You know, is it, or is it just so normalized that, you know, um, so there's so many kind of different ways to look at it. And when it comes to culturally responsive treatment, I mean, we want to be responding to the people that are in front of us. Right. So for such a long time, the, the buzzword was cultural competency, right? Like I am competent, you know, I'm, I'm competent enough to understand your culture and, you know, your, your, your view and your role within it that I can work with you, at, you know, using my experience and using my training and, you know, we can meet these goals. But you know, it, it, so this is, again, this is, this is my thoughts, but, you know, unless you have some kind of special connection to a culture, like you've grown up in it, you've grown up around it, 
you know, maybe you've lived in it uh, for several years. You know, you really can't be competent in someone else's culture. There's so many nuances. Yeah, you can read about it. Yeah, you can watch, you know, some media to try to understand it a little bit better. But there's so much nuances and there's so much difference within each culture, right? So, you know, cultural, culturally competent is, to me, again, it's a fallacy. It's, you know, it, so the view kind of shifted to cultural humility, right? We want to learn, right? So be humble, learn, ask questions, you know, so that's great as well, right? So you want to be receptive and take all that in. But then what are you doing with that information? Mm. Where does it go from there? Because if you're still conceptualizing the person in front of you, you know, using the lens that, you know, you learned in a book, the, the late 90s, based off a theory that was developed in the 60s, you know, that didn't take into account um, any kind of cultural differences other than the mainstream culture, you know, you're, you're going to be missing something. You're going to be missing a lot. And you could potentially do more harm than good. So you want to respond to what's in front of you, right? You take a humble approach, right? You, you, the, the client, is, they're the expert of their own world. So, you know, what happens, what, what do you do when you need to know some information that an expert has, right? You got to ask, you got to be curious. You have to want to learn, right? So you have to keep that humility, but then you also have to respond in an appropriate way. How do you mix your training? How do you mix your experience? How do you mix your expertise with what's and who is in front of you and what they're telling you about their life and their experience, you know, and their racial trauma, you know, and their cultural issues and their et cetera, et cetera. So how do you put that together? The competency is cultural competency. It's the, you know, competence is a baseline and it, it leads to, you know, stereotypes and generalizations. And we don't want to do that. Right. We want to really respond to what's in front of us. We want to learn, adapt, pivot, try to meet the need, familiarize ourselves and adjust. We can't just impose our values onto somebody else. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, this kind of speaks to the privilege piece, right? The concept of white privilege, where white is considered the norm, you know, at least here mm -hmm. in the West. It's considered the norm and everything else is kind of a deviation, but we're so steeped in it that, you know, too often, you know, people don't realize, you know, a fish doesn't know that it's wet. So we're so, so caught up in it that it's, it's really kind of hard to, to notice those differences. It's hard to kind of parse it out. It's almost like you have to kind of detox yourself a little bit to be able to look at these situations differently. And we're not judging people for cultural differences. We're not judging people for culturally acceptable behaviors. You know, we're not pathologizing things that are acceptable, cultural rituals, you know, cultural, uh, you know, behaviors that they regularly do. We're not, we're, you know, we shouldn't be pathologizing those things. We need to be responding to who and what is in front of us. What are they bringing into the room? And when they leave the room, what is their greater life like? And that's, is to me is really the only way to do effective treatment. I think it makes so much sense uh, respecting a person's uh, upbringing and, and their community and their culture because it would have such a huge factor in how they approach things in life, how they react to things in life. And any sort of like therapy and treatment should be, um, it should go hand in hand with that kind of growth as well. And uh, it was very interesting Absolutely. for you, the way you explained how it went from culturally competent to culturally humility, and then to cultural responsive. It was a very uh, organic growth and it made a lot of sense. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I wanna say, to, now, again, to me, like these, to me, these are simple concepts. This should be kind of widespread throughout the field. Unfortunately, you know, we're seeing that it's not. That is not, I mean, there's information and there's books out there and we, we see therapists are able to read it and intellectualize it. You know, they can think about it. They can talk about it in meetings. When it comes to actually putting it into practice, we're seeing a lot of challenges with that, right? We're, we're seeing, uh, you know, they're just kind of missing the mark where, you know, they can, they can leave a, 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 you know, a quote unquote cultural competence training, go to a session with a person 
of a different ethnicity and still kind of commit microaggressions based on uh, misunderstanding or not valuing that person's culture on the same level that they value their own. So these are things that still happen. Uh, so there, there is a lot, you know, it, it's, it's an effort, it's an, it's an uphill battle. Again, a fish doesn't know that it's wet, but we see it play, play out. I mean, still, we're talking stereotypes from, you know, going back to the civil rights era where, you know, black people are still overdiagnosed with schizophrenia. They could be presented with the same symptoms as a white counterpart. And you know they're they're being given a more severe diagnosis, up to four times as much. You know, um, evidence-based treatments, treatments that are they're said to be effective. You know, research is supposed to be showing that you know there, there's some universality to them where they can be applied across populations and across settings to very effective results. People of color receive those treatments less, even though. The research is supposed to show that it is just as effective, even though there are practitioners who are trained in those evidence-based treatments. And they may be giving them to their, to their white clients, but they're not giving them as often to people of color. So you got to ask, so why is that, right? Why are people of color receiving lesser, you know, earlier generation medications more often than not the newer generation medications? There's a lot that, that goes into this, and there's a lot of consequences that come out of it. And part of that tying into your earlier question, you know, about stigma and mental health in the black community, right? I mean, that also helps to fuel the distrust. That also helps to, to fuel the, the adverse reaction when it comes to working with these larger symptom, systems, because there have been so many violations and they continue. Like you said, it's uh, it's there in in theory, but it's it's being really hard to be put in practice. What do you think, um, as a person, how do we move towards actually being able to effectively put it into practice? How can a person start moving in that direction? I mean, so there's a personal there's some personal accountability to that. It's, it is a personal journey. Um, you know, increasing your insight, finding your blind spots, you know, doing the reflection doing the work, engaging in media from other cultures, you know, movies, reading, you know, talking and engaging people who are different from you. There is some personal accountability there, but there's also, you know, again, speaking to systems, there's some greater systemic accountability as well, right? So what is your organization's expectations? You know, does this come up at all in meetings? Is, uh, you know, cultural responsiveness, you know, is it, is it value, you know, or is it just, you know, this three page packet on diversity that you're supposed to read, you know, maybe once every two years and you move on. So how valued is it? How much is it discussed? Are there resources being devoted to increasing clinicians competence in these areas? You know, I'm licensed, I'm an LPC, you know, being licensed, you know, whether you're a psychologist, a licensed professional counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, you have to get continuing education credits. You have to get continued trainings to maintain your licensure. If you don't, then when it's time to renew, you can't renew it because you did not get enough um, continuing education credits. That means the emphasis is on continuing to learn, continuing to grow, continuing to develop in this field. What are you moving towards? What are you trying to learn? What are you developing in, right? So if there's no emphasis on this personal awareness, this insight, the, you know, recognizing your biases and your blind spots, then, you know, you're just going to miss it. And that's, there's, there's no misnomer in the name. It's called a blind spot for a reason, because you can't see it. You don't know that it's there, but, you know, uh, again, insight, critical reflection, supervision, Right, meeting with your supervisor and kind of exploring these things, connecting with a mentor, you know, speaking to people who are different from you, you know, consuming uh, media from other culture, challenging your biases and your preconceptions. So yes, there is a, a huge uh, personal accountability component of it, but also again, organizationally, there needs to be some systemic accountability as well, right? And that can show up through training, that can show up through fundings, that can show up through organizational culture, that can show up through initiatives, 
So there, there needs to be a push on both sides. Thank you for breaking that down for us. Truly, I think uh, hopefully this is one of those medias that will have those conversations and we can learn more about it. Um, Absolutely. As much of information we can get out is probably the only way we can start moving in that direction. So thank you for taking that initiative and speaking because clearly even in your work, it is a big part of um, your, your work as well, creating awareness on these specific topics. Yeah, absolutely. I, so I actually did yesterday, I did an anti-racism and mental health training. And part of it is, you know, so one of the participants, you know, she mentioned that, uh, you know, in the Q and A segment afterwards that she, she doesn't know how to respond. And she was really, she's beating herself up that, you know, she's in these situations where she is the target of microaggressions, you know, in the workplace. And she just doesn't, you know, she didn't know how to respond to that appropriately. And that's the thing, right? So when, as a person of color, when you're, when you're dealing with these things, I mean, it's not only are we the target. So, you know, another way you could frame that is, is the victim of microaggressions, but then we're kind of stuck with this, undo, you know, this, this extra burden, right? How do we deal with this? Like, did this person really mean it? You know, I thought I know I know this person, or I, I thought I knew this person, right? Is is this what they really think about me, right? So you, you're you're dealing with that piece, and then it's, there's also this other side, like, well, I gotta say something, or should I say something? Can I say something? How do I say something? All while you know you're still trying to pick yourself up off the floor because you're just you know a little you know you're shocked because of what this person just said about you. So. You know, there is, uh, you know, there's a lot to really kind of consider, uh, you know, when we go through these experiences and we're not always going to have the right, you know, the quote unquote right responses or the, the responses that, you know, we feel like would have been best in that moment. But what avenues do we have, right? So, you know, you know, I'm a therapist, I'm, I'm not a comedian, I don't have the best or the wittiest comebacks, or always know what to say right in that moment. But this is something I can do, I can give a training, you know, I can give a talk, I can give a lecture, so I can still raise awareness, and I can still find some way to make, a, you know, make a difference and do my part. You know, even if, you know, in that exact moment, I may feel like I don't know what exactly to say, or I don't know exactly how to respond in the best way. Right, so I can take that energy and I can redirect it into something like this, so that hopefully those moments can decrease because people are now more aware of their biases or they're doing some more personal work, so that you know they're not you know putting other people through those types of situations as often as they did. Thank you. I mean that makes a lot of sense, and it's been very eye-opening for me personally as well. Just like yeah. hearing you talk about all of this, and I know mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of. Um, reading to continue even after this discussion mm. and I hope that others that listen to this also will take that step and sort of understand their personal journey as well with understanding this more yeah yeah I, I mean I, ho I hope so I mean I always you know I hope to to educate and raise awareness and inspire change so um, definitely that's one of my goals I truly think you're doing it with your work. Thank you. Um, so like I told you, we said, uh, had um, circulated a questionnaire for the past mm -hmm. couple of months and we had some questions sent in. So I was hoping we could get to a few of those if you're okay with it. Absolutely. Um, one reason why I really wanted to have this particular section is uh, these are probably individuals that don't have the resources or the accessibility to therapists and who could ask these questions and also I think maybe some of them are just scared to ask these questions. I think mm -hmm. that is something I've noticed as well. I, I know I was personally terrified of asking a couple of que a few questions when I was starting off with therapy and the idea of it as a whole. And honestly, mm -hmm. I think these are questions that maybe a lot of people might have something similar and might have something to understand from. So thank mm -hmm. you for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so the first question that we have is... Um, what are some things that someone with PTSD can make, can do to make things, make daily life more tolerable? And so, and this question comes from someone who doesn't really have access to treatment, right? Yeah, it's very likely. Yeah. Okay. 
So, so generally speaking, and I laugh, I mean, it's not funny, but you know, if someone has PTSD, you know, the first thing I would recommend is to see treatment, but for someone who doesn't have that access, I mean, so there, there's a few different ways to look at it. So, I mean, well, I would say for one, let's start with the diagnosis. Um, you know, for them to say that they have PTSD. So where has, where did that come from? Right? So if they most likely don't have access to treatment. Is, are they di- Are they self-diagnosing? You know, did, did they go to someone and, and someone told them they had that? Was that a professional or? So I would recommend uh, first off, just kind of seeking professional advice on that if possible. You know, if, if that's not possible, so there are options just kind of based on, uh, you know, telehealth and, you know, use of the internet. Um, you know, telehealth has, has been, it's really expanded a lot during COVID and it's been able to kind of connect, help to connect us in ways that it just wasn't really being, it wasn't used before. So, um, you know, if they have access through the use of telehealth, that would be great. Finding out I mean, the accuracy of that. Now, telehealth is something that has, is really exploded since COVID. And it, it, now, now, I don't know if, they have, if, they're, if they're lacking access to a, a professional provider, they may have lack of access to internet as well. So that can be another barrier. But, you know, but if not, I mean, there, there are still ways to connect to providers through, you know, electronically, through use of the internet. But so, but even taking a step back, right? It's also important to differentiate between, you know, uh, it, what is PTSD versus what is experiencing something traumatic? So just as people, right? We, we all have, we all experience traumatic events, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that we're traumatized. You know, there's a difference between you know, it, trauma is a natural response to something that kind of overwhelms our systems, whether we've witnessed it, whether we've experienced it, whether we just heard about it, right? So trauma is, is a natural response to that. And for, for most people who experience trauma, they are able to bounce back. It may take some time. You know, there's, a, there's an area between when someone, you know, experiences, witnesses, or, or kind of hears about a traumatic event to when they display PTSD symptoms, that is, you know, it's a normal kind of window period where it's kind of expected. You know, it's called acute stress disorder, and that's much more easily treatable uh, than PTSD. But again, but generally speaking, many people kind of grow out of that, or they they respond well to that. Their, Their resiliency kind of kicks in and they grow past. You may see some kind of post traumatic growth from that. You know, now, if they just have PTSD, if you know they've kind of cross-checked the symptoms and they've looked and they're they're positive, I mean, one of the things is so uh, acute stress disorder is is much is much more easily treatable than PTSD, and you know acute stress disorder it's it's you know it's it's basically uh, PTSD before it's PTSD. So you know if you you have to have that for an extended amount of time before you can actually be diagnosed with PTSD. And then your symptoms tend to worsen. So one of the things that we often see with anxiety, with uh, trauma disorders is that, uh, you know, they can be fueled, like similar to anxiety, fueled by um, avoidance, right? Avoiding, you know, if there's an area where you, you, you were mugged, avoiding that area. Um, you know, if there was, uh, you know, a, a perpetrator, you know, who, um, you know, attacked you or abused you, right? Avoiding that person. Um, if you see someone who looks like them, you know, or, or reminds you of them, or, or, you know, maybe they dress in a similar way or walk in a similar way, right? Kind of uh, avoiding that, you know, that individual. So avoidance kind of helps to strengthen that cycle. Uh, so one of the, so typically, I mean, there's, there's different types of PTSD treatments. And, you know, there's the approach where you just kind of dive headfirst in the ocean, you know, prolonged exposure. And it's just like, you just overexpose yourself to the trauma. You record your story over and over and over again. And you go home and you listen to it and you come back and you do it again, you know, which can be overwhelming to, to many people. You know, there's the, 
you know, like the TFCBT approach where you're like dipping your toe in water and you're slowly, slowly walking through as, as you gain, you know, skills, as you, as you build your strength, as you build your resiliency to then be able to take your, your trauma head on. You know, there are approaches that are somewhere in the middle, but generally speaking, you know, I would, you know, if you don't have access to treatment, you know, one, you know, building your coping skills, what are your, what strategies, how can you ground yourself? You know, when you're experiencing a flashback, how do you bring yourself back to the present moment, right? How are you utilizing mindfulness to, um, you know, be present? You know, you know, when you, when you have moments, when you go back to the trauma, how are you being mindful or how can you utilize your skills or your natural supports? Are there people in your life, sibling, partner, you know, uh, parent who can kind of help guide you through that, right? So leaning on your natural supports, um, having someone to talk to, you know, if it's not a professional, is there somebody that you really, really trust? Somebody who you can feel comfortable disclosing some of the, you know, the more, uh, you, know, you know, the more uh, nitty gritty details of what occurred with your trauma to someone, someone who's not gonna judge you for them, someone who's not gonna look at you differently, right? Someone who's gonna help support you, you know, in your times when you need it most, a faith leader, you know, uh, you know, an elder in your community, something like that. So leaning on your natural supports, uh, you know, finding uh, and developing your coping skills and ways to be mindful and, and ground yourself and bring yourself back to reality, you know, when your body takes you or your mind takes you somewhere else, you know, and con continue to work on those things and then eventually kind of putting your story together. What we don't want to do typically, again, there's different approaches, but at least without the, the proper kind of professional supports, you don't want to kind of overwhelm your systems, right? And dive into the trauma. But, you know, it is helpful to kind of get it out, get your story out, put it into a cohesive whole. Um, because with trauma, there are times, you know, the way that the brain, one of the ways that the brain protects itself is by uh, kind of shattering the memory. So the memory isn't all together. So it may come back in, in bits and pieces. You may not remember things clearly. Dates can be kind of mixed up. But trying to put that together as much as possible in like an organized process, you know, and that's one of those times where, you know, while you're doing activities like that, you would have to really lean into your coping skills and your natural supports. Is there someone who can kind of be there with you while you're, you're doing that? Is there someone who can be on standby, you know, in case you need additional support while you're doing that, right? You wanna pay attention to your body. You know, what is your body telling you? How is it reacting? You know, are you sweating? Is your heart rate increasing? Is your back tensing? And you wanna be able to engage in certain relaxation activities to really kind of counteract that. You wanna do that proactively, but you also wanna be aware of your body and do that reactively, right? And that's where kind of some more of that mindfulness comes in to kind of de-escalate yourself and kind of recenter yourself. So, I mean, it's a process. I mean, I know I kind of threw a lot out there, but you know, just to kind of sum up, I mean, you wanna be able to identify and connect with your natural supports, right? Who in your, nat in your ecosystem, in your environment, who can you really trust and rely on? Who can help you to walk through this? And it doesn't have to be the whole, it can be different pieces, right? Someone can help you practice certain coping skills. Someone else can help you with mindfulness. Someone you can share pieces you know, of your trauma with. It doesn't all have to be the same person, but you know, leaning on those natural supports, uh, you know, growing with your coping skill usage and your mindfulness um, and being able to uh, use those techniques to, you know, when you're triggered, uh, proactively and also reactively, but additionally, you know, being able to uh, write your story, get it out in some shape or form. So like you, you're doing a podcast, right? Other people, you know, maybe they write a poem, you know, someone else, maybe they write a story, someone else, maybe they put it in a song, but how are you expressing yourself? And, um, you know, kind of in a sense, you know, unloading that burden of, of guilt or, or shame or embarrassment that you may carry for something that wasn't even your fault. So that would be uh, my advice. And also, you know, finding purpose, right? So, I mean, you know, you experienced a traumatic event and, and it, was, it was terrible, it was awful, it could even be unjust, right? But how has that changed you? 
you know, what can you do about it now? How can you be empowered for yourself and help others who may be in similar predicaments, right? So finding purpose in your pain. Uh, now that's a more long, more long journey, uh, you know, to that, but, you know, be empowered that, you know, there are things that you can do for yourself and for others who, who've had similar traumas and that, uh, you know, the, the state that you're in, you know, it's, it's, it's not a permanent state. There's work to be done and it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but there is healing that can take place. And there, you do have natural resiliency that you can build from, you can improve to help you bounce back, you know, even, uh, you know, in a stronger place than you were before the traumatic incident. That was a plethora of information. Thank you so much for such a detailed answer. I'm sure that there's so much that we could learn from that answer as well. So many different coping mechanisms. I really like how you broke down that you don't have to confide in one person. It, it, it doesn't have to be one individual that helps you with your coping strategies. You could break them down if you're comfortable with certain aspects with one person, help them. Someone might be able to help you with meditation. That, that was very interesting. For Absolutely. Me as well. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of people get hung up on where it's like, you know, I, I think it's, and this is one of the reasons why therapists exist is it's so hard for many people to find that one person who can be all encompassing to them. But you do have people who can do other things, right? It, you know, instrumental supports, effective supports, instrumental, you know, who can, you know, who can you borrow sugar from? Who can you ask for a ride from? You know, if you need, uh, you know, if you need some extra grocery money, you know, uh, people who can help you with things, but then the effective supports who, who can help you emotionally, who, who can be a shoulder to cry on when you need it, who can you just vent to about your job, who can you vent to about your family, right? So they may not, they're usually not all the same person. So, um, you know, being careful who, because the last, you know, one of the last things people want who have been traumatized is to share the story with someone and then it's used against them, you know, or they're judged or looked at differently. So you really, you know, you have to be careful who who you're sharing what with, but, you know, go with uh, the people that you're comfortable with. And, you know, you can kind of, you can make a list. It may help to make a list to kind of delve it up. But a lot of times people have more supports than they realize. But and if you can, can separate it and make a list and you can see who can really help me with this. But also on the flip side, there's also a, you know, a, a giving side as well. Cause you know, you're in a place of hurt, you're in a place of pain. So yeah, you're taking, right? You need some support, but also for many people giving, right? So who can I be an heir to? Who can I listen to, right? That can help distract you from what you have going on. That can help to teach you, uh, you know, some more about resiliency that can help foster a stronger connection. And now, right, you can be developing another natural support that you can rely on just by being there for somebody else. So there's so much that can come from also being that, that resource that you're hoping to receive from other people. I could uh, relate very much so about the not having, that not knowing that you have more support systems than you can realize. I think mm -hmm. uh, a lot of us are just so hesitant to talk about such yeah. heavier topics because we've never been sort of encouraged to like you're constantly told like don't don't air out your bad, bad laundry laundry outside mm -hmm. um don't yeah. have these intense honest conversations as openly or as frequently i think we're constantly told like feel your happy feelings present yourself in a certain way and i think that sort of like sits in our mind and it's sort of like it's a condition to it so even when i went my went through my own personal struggles I was never sort of encouraged to talk about what I was feeling and which made me delay a long, mm -hmm. a, a lot of time before I actually dealt with my issues. And when I did start opening up, I was quite surprised by the fact that there are support systems that I can lean on, but mm -hmm. it was never something that I expected. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and it, it can be, it can be very powerful to learn that, that, you know, you may find out that some of the people closest to you have experienced similar things, right? And you're not alone in what you feel. You're not alone in what you experience, right? And now you have a partner to work to to walk through this journey with, and you know that can really make all the difference in the world. 
Absolutely. I think that sensation of just not knowing you're not alone in your experience yeah. is so, so important. And what we're hoping to sort of achieve with mm. the Mind Matters project as well, mm. sort of just bringing these stories out and people realizing mm. that there are others that have had similar experiences and that they're not in the boat alone, stranded at sea, that there are others that can hold yeah. their hand through their journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and actually, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up because so if this person was able to submit a question to you, you know, they must have some kind of access to, you know, technology or the internet. I mean, there's groups where people can, you know, find support among strangers over the internet who've, who've experienced similar things. Uh, you know, she, so this person, whoever submitted this question, they can re remain anonymous while still, you know, uh, getting that support that they need, or they can, you know, be public with it and, you know, over social media and, and, and find ways to, empower others who have been through similar circumstances. So there's a lot of different avenues. You know, I, I would say the important, probably the, the most important points of things not to do is shutting down, closing yourself off, suffering in silence, um, you know, just feeling alone because it, it can feel very lonely, but, but it also, it doesn't have to because more people have experienced similar things, you know, then you've realized it's just making that connection with them. Uh, so, you know, I would say, you know, keep those things in mind. And, uh, you know, when you feel the anxiety coming on, you know, when you feel, you know, your body speaking to you and it's telling you something, uh, listen to what your body's saying and respond to that. You know, I would, I would recommend and it'll take some time to build up the skills to do this. Don't think it's something that happens overnight, but not, not running from it, right? When you feel your back tightening, you know, you know, take a moment, meditate, do some mindfulness, relax your back as much as you can, right? When you feel your heartbeat increasing, right? Do some deep breathing, uh, you know, take a moment, you know, uh, you know, if, if you're at work, if you can go to the restroom, take a break, you know, um, you know, just kind of disengage from, whatever's currently around you and listen to what your body's telling you and don't avoid it, but act on it. That's incredible advice. I think something that I'm also personally going to start trying to apply in my life as well. Um, yeah. The next question that we have is, uh, I was beaten till the age of 12 by my family. This makes me fear having a conversation with them till date, especially when our opinions don't match. Um, do you have any advice how to cope with this? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think part of it depends on how old are you currently, you know, said since the age of 12. So what's the current age? Um, how is this person separated from their family? Uh, you know, what would it do for you to speak to them? You know, is it necessary? You know, is it, you know, culturally, do you feel a need to be speaking with your family? Is, is that, is, would that be healthy for you to, ha to have continued conversations if they beat you uh, repeatedly? Um, what are you hoping to accomplish by having these conversations with your family? What do you want to hear from them? What are you expecting to hear from them? Um, have they acknowledged the abuse? Do they deny it? Uh, I, so I think this is really, context specific um you know i it, you know i i can't give advice you know it's like it's not an advice column but i think these are some questions that you really need to think about you know so i mean again a lot of it probably depends on your age whether you're still uh you know legally a, a child or whether you're an adult and you can live on your own and you're separated from your family but what are you looking for from your family and whatever you're looking for are they likely to be able to provide it? Can they even acknowledge the abuse? And if not, how healthy would it be for you to talk to them right now? What is that driving desire for you to have these conversations in this moment? Yeah, that may be something to revisit at a, at a later time where maybe, you know, you've healed a little bit more from some of the wounds that this caused, where you've been able to address some of the trauma you know, and you're in a more stable place emotionally or, or, or psychologically. Um, 
you know, and even spiritually, right? I mean, not allowing yourself to be broken by this. And, and I say allow because despite when anyone does to you um, or whatever happens to you, you are empowered and you can be in control. It's not easy, but it's definitely possible. Like you can be in control. So while you had no control as a child, while you were beaten by your family, right? You can, you know, it sounds like you're in a place where you're in control, where you don't have to have conversations with them or not, where, you know, you, there, there seems to be some kind of separation where you don't have to kind of go back to, the, to, to this environment and deal with these similar things. So, um, you know, I, I would, so I would advise to, um, you know, really kind of think about some of these questions. How necessary is it for you to have these conversations with your family now? And, you know, maybe work on healing, um, you know, work on building up your resiliency emotionally, work on healing physically, right? Your body remembers the hits, your body remembers the pain, your body remembers the tenseness and the fear and the anxiety, right? Work on healing physically, um, work on healing spiritually, right? You know, not being broken, um, you know, connecting to more, uh, you know, even forgiveness, uh, which, you know, that, that can, that's a journey in and of itself. And uh, also just thinking psychologically as well. I mean, talking with your family about this, I mean, it can be re-traumatizing. It can be triggering. You know, it may even trigger you to hurt yourself depending on the response. So, you know, what is, I mean, what's the time frame here? You know, are these conversations that need to happen immediately or, you know, can you take some time for yourself to heal, to recover, to build some resiliency and then see once you get to that place, is it even worth having these conversations with your family? Are you in a place now where you don't need a resolute or you don't need, you know, uh, some admission of guilt from them because, you know, you've moved past it, you know, you've recovered, you're in a place where you don't need their, uh, their approval. So, I mean, these are all things to, to really think and reflect on. What I really liked is how you sort of acknowledged if it's healthy to have these conversations. I think we're constantly um, burdened with this sort of obligation that we must keep our family close and like establishing boundaries with family is something so unconventional and not something we should be doing. But I think just the fact that you're acknowledging uh, mm -hmm. by saying that is it healthy for you to have these conversations is it required I think that's so important for us to like sort of say out loud because I think a lot of people feel a certain amount of guilt almost mm -hmm. that they don't want to have the same sort of close relationship with their parents or their family especially when they've gone through something like this yeah yeah and and that's why I mean I asked the question because you know depending on this person's culture, I mean, they may be expected to have this relationship with their family. So I can't speak to one way or the other based on cultural expectations, but it's something for you to think about how healthy would it be even at this moment? You know, it doesn't mean you can't have a relationship ever. You shouldn't ever talk to them. But at this moment where you're still vulnerable, you're still dealing with the aftermath, um, you know, probably not in a place where you've really healed or recovered yet. I mean, the priority should be, you know, your healing and recovery first. And how does talking with this, talking with your family who, you know, who, who your opinions don't match with, uh, and the, with the sense that I'm getting from this is that, you know, they're minimizing or denying abuse. How healthy would that be for you? And how does that fit into your recovery? You know, and that's something to really examine, because if it doesn't, at this stage in time, not saying forever, but at this stage in time, at this point in your life, what would be the point? I what are you trying to accomplish? Thank you so much for that. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I hope that the person who sent in the question has got some clarity and sits with those questions because I think those questions really are important for us to have. Um, I just have Absolutely. one more question before we wind up. Mm -hmm. um, I recently opened up about assaults I experienced as a child but now I can't seem to control my thoughts about what happened. I'm constantly having flashbacks and I don't know what to do or how to address them. So, yeah, I would say similar to the earlier question. Yeah, I would recommend seeking treatment. It sounds like PTSD. Uh, you know, there are different types of treatments that can be effective. 
uh, you know, it's and, and also connecting to people who you know, who you feel comfortable enough sharing, you know, parts of your experience and knowing that you're not alone with this, you know, um, you know, I mean, there, there are coping skills, mindfulness, you know, there are things that you can utilize to help kind of, you know, grounding, right. Kind of coming back to coming back to earth, you know, when you're having these flashbacks, when you're psychologically someplace else, instead of where you are physically, you know, there are, so there are skills that, you know, you can practice that you can use, but, you know, and this may sound counterintuitive, but, you know, as long as it's not too overwhelming, you know, as long as, you know, you, you don't feel like you, you, you can't handle it, you know, allowing yourself to experience it, you know, not avoiding it. Like, what is your body telling you as these flashbacks come on, right? I mean, you can journal it. Um, you can you can keep track. You can monitor your progress. You know, get the thoughts out, but really need to develop the skills and not overwhelm yourself. You know, as they come out, right? So so, and that's what we don't want. When I say not to avoid it, I mean a lot of times people avoid uh, you know anxiety provoking thoughts and, and situations because they don't have the skills to handle them. You know, I mean it can lead to I mean, people catastrophize to what it could lead to, but, you know, it could lead to panic attacks. It can lead to dissociation. You know, it, it can lead to really uncomfortable experiences in public. And, you know, that's, that's not what we want. So a, a lot of it is developing the skills to be able to handle it and then allowing yourself to be exposed to it. So as you increase exposure, you're desensitizing yourself to it and it's losing power. So those, those are things that I, I would recommend, but, you know, first and foremost, I would recommend seeking treatment. Thank you so much, Christopher. Um, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us and breaking down such important discussions and really opening my eyes as well to so many things that we clearly need to learn more about. Um, before we wind up, do you have any final thoughts or any words that you want to leave for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say be kind to yourselves. You know, um, it's, it's so easy when you've been, uh, the, when you're a survivor of a traumatic experience to, to blame yourself for the trauma uh, or, you know, to blame yourself for the symptoms of the trauma or to blame yourself for the consequences of you dealing with the symptoms of the trauma, whether that's affected personal relationships, that's suspect, you know, romantic or family or, or it's impacted your ability to work or leave the house or do daily activities. Um, but, you know, this, 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 this isn't easy. And we are just learning. We are, you know, I would, I would say probably within, I don't know, the past 10 years or so, maybe we are just really kind of learning and delving into just the significance is how much trauma can impact a person. I mean, we're even learning more about on the genetic level, how, you know, a psychological traumatic experience can, can impact somebody. So there's just more and more information coming out and that information is not as easily accessible to everyone. But as, you know, as we continue to learn and we continue to grow with these experiences or with this knowledge, uh, you know, just know that you're not alone in your experience uh, there are others out there who have experienced similar things and, uh, you know, be kind to yourself and, you know, guilt, shame, embarrassment, those are all feelings that help or, or that, that stand in the way of healing, that stand in the way of recovery, you know, that stand in the way of empowerment, but they're also natural feelings as well. So, you know, as you're experiencing those things, um, you have to find your way to learn how to handle them, you know, in, in the healthiest way possible. Because as long as you're holding on to those things, you know, those things are going to stand in the way of your healing. So be kind to yourself throughout your journey. It is not a linear path. There are steps forward and there are steps backwards. There are pitfalls, there are traps, there are snakes in the grass that will try to bite you. But it is a journey. 
And as long as you're still moving forward, you're still making progress. Thank you so much for that. That's such a wonderful and honest um, description of what life as a journey is. And I think that's just something what we need more of. Uh, the more these conversations are romanticized, there's a false narrative in our head. And we tend to believe in this fairy tale that we might not ever get. And I think that causes a lot of detriment to our health as well. So thank you for being so open and honest. And thank you again for taking the time. It's truly been a pleasure and an honor, honestly. No, thank, thank you again. 